All right, good morning everyone and good morning to those of you joining us online. Sorry we were running just a few minutes. Late today we got engaged in a stimulating conversation in the narthex. So let's begin it with an invocation. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right, we are in the middle of John Chrysostom's homily 20. On Ephesians uh, chapter 5, looking at the marital relationship, the relationship between husband and wife. And on page 51, we left off with that paragraph. It's got some, it's got some just great, great one-liners in it. Maybe, maybe toward the end of that paragraph. What page? Page 51. Page 51. St. Paul explicitly says that we are members of his Christ's flesh and of his bones. Understand that Adam was fashioned from matter and Christ was born in the same. So there's the incarnational connection that one can view a marital aspect to the incarnation itself because, again, Properly speaking, before the foundation of the world, God envisions his marriage to man, Christ and his church. And then everything is ordered accordingly to reflect this foundational glory. And so as we then look to husband and wife and those two becoming one flesh, as the scriptures say, we can see a reflection of the glory of Christ and his church his bride, the church. And part of that marital dimension is that in the incarnation, Christ becomes flesh of our flesh and bone of our bone. So as husband and wife become one flesh, when the word of God becomes flesh, one flesh with us, there is a kind of marriage or something very close to the mystery of marriage taking place. And that's precisely Chrysostom's point here the end of the, the paragraph on page 51. Adam was fashioned from matter and Christ was born in the same. From Adam's side came the bearer of corruption. That's Eve. So Eve taken from Adam and then the two reunited in one flesh producing offspring and that offspring being corrupted on account of sin. But from Christ's side came life. It's John who tells us that from Christ's side blood and water flows. And if you tie in his epistle, blood, water, and spirit, that which constitutes Christ's Eve, Christ's bride, the Holy Church. So from Adam, from his side comes death. From Christ, from his side comes life as Christ joins himself with us. And, and Chrysostom earlier in this paragraph has already pointed out the sacramental reality, 
that we are truly members of his flesh because we are recreated by partaking in his mysteries. That's the language of sacraments. So to be born again, to be born from above in the waters of holy baptism is to be born after Christ, in the flesh of Christ, not in the flesh of Adam, um, which is our natural birth. To be born again in holy baptism is to be born in Christ of his flesh. And then to partake of his body and blood in the sacrament is to become one body and blood with him. And so Chrysostom's already pointed out this reality too. He continues, death blossomed in paradise, but was slain on the cross. The Son of God shares our nature so that we can share His. And He has us in Him, so we have Him in us. And this is where we, 20th, 21st century Lutherans, can again go off on this kind of extreme tangent, this, ex- this exclusive extranos outside of us tangent, and ignore the plain teaching of Scripture that... Uh, a a fundamental aspect of Christianity is us in Christ and Christ in us. An ontological reality. All right, on to the new material. For this reason, here Chrysostom quoting St. Paul, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Verse 31 of Ephesians chapter 5. There is another aspect of marital obligation. Paul shows that a man leaves his parents who gave him life and is joined to his wife and that one flesh, father, mother, and child, results from the commingling of the two. The child is born from the union of their seed, so the three are one flesh. Our relationship to Christ is the same. We become one flesh with him through communion, more truly one with him than our children are one with us, because this has been his plan from the beginning. This is really, really beautiful, and it might just sort of sound like a platitude, but dig into this a little bit. And it will be exactly as, as I expressed just moments ago, that God's plan from the beginning was to be one with us. And thus, he creates not only the relationship of husband and wife to show forth this union that God desires to have with man, but then the offspring of that one flesh union in the child, and then the relationship of parents to children, that too reflects precisely the relationship that God wants to have with us. That we be one flesh with him in such a way that we are not only his beloved spouse as the church, but that we be one flesh with him in such a way that we are his beloved children and he our our dear, compassionate, tender, heavenly father. Okay, so all of this is packed into creation, the reflection of the deeper and more foundational reality that has been revealed to us in the coming of Christ. Our relationship to Christ is the same. We become one flesh with him through communion. So earlier, earlier, Chrysostom specified baptism and the rebirth, then the incarnation, and now here, holy communion. 
as three different modes or motifs or ways in which to comprehend this one flesh union with Christ. And then just picking up with that mid-sentence with that final thought, more truly one with him than our children are one with us because this has been his plan from the beginning. Beautiful and true. Don't make excuses for yourselves, Chrysostom continues. Surely you realize that your body has many defects. One person is lame, another has deformed feet or hands, another is sick in one way or other. Yet never is anyone so grief-stricken that he cuts off his afflicted member. Instead, he pays more attention to it than to the rest of his body, naturally, since it is part of him. A man should love his spouse as much as he loves himself, not merely because they share the same nature. No, the obligation is far greater, because there are no longer two bodies but one. He is the head, she the body. So again, um, just zooming out in terms of the rhetoric of the homily, this is directed more toward the husband side and the obligations that Paul lays upon husbands to uh, not only be the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, but then to love wife as Christ loves the church. And so here, an exposition of that point in principle. Chrysostom continues. Paul says elsewhere, the head of Christ is God. And I say that husband and wife are one body in the same way as Christ and the Father are one. Thus we see that the Father is our head also. Paul has combined two illustrations, the natural body and Christ's body. That is why he says, this is a great mystery. And I take it to mean Christ and the church. Now quoting verse 32 of Ephesians 5. What does this mean? The blessed Moses, or rather God, surely reveals in Genesis that for two to become one flesh is a great and wonderful mystery. Now Paul speaks of Christ as the greater mystery. For he left the Father and came down to us and married his bride, the church, and became one spirit with her. He who is united to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. A direct quotation of 1 Corinthians 6.17. Paul says, well, this is a great mystery. As if he were saying, nevertheless, the allegorical meaning does not invalidate married love. He returns to that subject in what follows. Now quoting uh, Paul, However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband, verse 33 of Ephesians 5. And you will see a note there um, that the Greek word for respect in verse 33 is phobete, which uh, would be more accurately translated, has in awe. Um, Simply put, Phobos is fear, and so phobote is fear, and so we've got this 
this kind of difficult term to translate in English and at least in our modern American way of thinking in what way is fear good and not good, that kind of thing. Um, but to simply avoid all of that is sort of a fruitless digression. Um, that, is, that is nakedly what the word means, to fear, and then the, the editor here has put it, has in awe. We're going to see, we're going to see Chrysostom just refer to fear later on. And so I wanted to point that out so you can see where he's getting it from. Um, but then plainly it would be, let the wife see that she fears her husband or respects her husband or has her husband in awe. That kind of semantic nexus. Indeed, Chrysostom says, of all actions, it is a mystery, a great mystery indeed, that a man should leave him who gave life to him and brought him up, and her who suffered in labor and childbirth, for a man to leave those who have favored him with so many great blessings, those with whom he has been in such close contact, and be united to one whom he has not always known, and who often has nothing in common with him, and should honor her more than all others, that is a mystery indeed. And it is. It's really a profound and wonderful thing. Just strange, just worth marveling at. Um, I'm sure that many fruitful meditations could be had. I'm not really inclined to point out too many of them, but just to reiterate what Chrysostom says, it is a remarkable thing that um, we enter this world as being one flesh with our parents and then leave that one flesh union in order to enjoin another. And God willing, with God's blessing and in course of time, that one flesh union actually becomes more normative for us especially just when viewed in, in light of chronology. In our context, you, you, know, you might um, spend 18 years in your parents' home, hopefully, hopefully not much more than that for their sake. <laughs> and then, and then you, get, you get married, although, although that rarely happens even in, in our 20s anymore. But um, if you get married in, even at 30 or something like that, you spend, God willing, the rest of your life with your spouse, that's, uh, that's going to be more years than you spent in your parents' household. So you go off to that which is a stranger and unite yourself and the two become one flesh. And again, God willing, you have your own children, your own family. It is a, it is a mystery and a marvel. And it, as Chrysostom has reflected on it, it in some respects shows forth uh, by way of allegory, by way of analogy, Christ leaving his father in order to marry we who were estranged to him through our sins. Indeed, we who were enemies of God and marrying us and making himself one flesh with us and thus uniting him into, uh, uniting us through himself into this larger family of God. You know, it's a rather stunning thing too just to think by way of tangent that while God is certainly and absolutely one, he is also three. That oneness is familial. And the family has, has equal standing with the singularity that is God, the, the oneness that is God, that it is a oneness in Trinity, and that Trinity is necessarily family. So even in God, you can see that family or the family unit is the unit 
So a, an individual human being is, in a sense, no human being. You're either connected with, you're either connected with your, your father and mother who bore you, and thus, thus your, your being human is intimately connected with that one flesh union, and or, uh, I'm not trying to be technical here, but then you're one, you're one flesh union with your spouse, such that the two become one and then children. Um, again, it's kind of this idea of one man is, is no man. We are all uh, familial, we are all one flesh, either with our parents or with our spouse and our own children. Yes? Five children in a family. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah, when you, that's well expressed, Bob. And for the sake of those listening online, um, yeah, whenever, even if you have five children, they're, they're a unique expression of the one flesh union of husband and wife. And so you've got these triangles, you've got these trinities sort of all throughout the familial relationship. That's exactly right. And, and the church fathers discuss that, to be sure. Now, now it's to take nothing away from... Um, you know, married couples that can't have children. It's to take nothing away from that. Uh, in fact, there's a very, very rich biblical um, teaching and expression and motif on, on what it means to be barren and childless and um, how, God, how God, even though that is ostensibly, um, you know, no, no one except for perverse modern people want that. You know, uh, everybody wants to have children ultimately. And... Um, you know, unless of course, unless of course they're inclined to celibacy and being married to the church, as Chrysostom stated, right? But when but you're they're in, still a part of three with their parents, in a sense. Yes, exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. E right. Even even a single and an individual remains. Right. Remains. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not trying to I'm not trying to be exclusivistic at all. But this is just a kind of this is a kind of theology that uh, Saint Paul reflects on. And um, then the church fathers and, and Christian theologians ever since have reflected on this. And um, simply because there's exceptions to it doesn't mean that a, a person or a couple is uh, somehow devalued. Uh, certainly not. Um, but this is sort of the normative expression of this mystery. Okay, any, any thoughts you have, questions, comments, those of you who are here and able? Um, if not, we'll simply just uh, march along. I've got to regain my place here. Did we finish that paragraph on 52? Yeah, we did, because I mentioned the allegorical meaning. All right, let's... Um, oh, yeah, we started talking about respect being fear. So, however, um, bottom of 52 just to repeat a little bit. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects or fears or holds in awe her husband. Indeed, of all actions, it is a mystery, a great mystery indeed, that a man should leave him who gave life to him and brought him up and her who suffered in labor and childbirth for a man to leave those who have favored him with so many great blessings, those with whom he has been in such close contact and be united to one whom he has not always known and who often has nothing in common with him. And Chrysostom may here have in his thinking arranged marriages and that kind of thing too. And should honor her more than all others, that is a mystery indeed. Yet parents are not distressed when marriages take place. 
But when they don't, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I think sometimes parents are distressed when marriages take place, um, but clearly they're also distressed when they don't take place. They are delighted to spend money lavishly on weddings. Well, again, I don't know about delighted. <laughs> but I think you can grasp this point. They are delighted to spend money lavishly on weddings. Another great mystery indeed. And one that contains some hidden wisdom. Moses prophetically showed this to be so from the very beginning. And Paul proclaims it now when he compares it to Christ and the church. This is said not for the husband's sake alone, however, but for the wife as well, so that he will cherish his own flesh as Christ does the church, and that she will respect her husband. Okay, so again, here's the, there's a mutuality and a certain kind of complementarianism here. Um, they're not identical roles. Um, the husband takes on the form of cherishing his wife as his own flesh. The wife takes on the form of respecting, fearing, holding in awe her husband. So they're not identical, but they, are, they do sort of have a symmetry and a complementary aspect. And I only mean that narrowly here in this, in this sense, in the sense of this passage. Paul is no longer enumerating the duties of love, uh, of love only, but of respect also. Now, this is going to be a little spicy. This flies right in the face of uh, feminism, right in the face of so much of, uh, of contemporary American culture and wisdom. But I, you know, I challenge you to think biblically and to think as St. Paul puts it. And I, and I think that you will see uh, that Chrysostom has it exactly right, controversial though it may sound to our ears. The wife is a second authority. She should not demand equality, for she is subject to the head. Neither should the husband belittle her subjection, for she is the body. If the head despises the body, it will itself die. Rather, let the husband counterbalance her obedience with his love. Let the hands, the feet, and all the rest of the body's parts be dedicated to the service of the head, but let the head provide for the body, for the head is responsible for all the members. Okay, so here just, I think, a beautiful and true treatment. We talked a little bit already, so I won't belabor it, about the husband counterbalancing the wife's obedience with his love. So... um, talked about we talked about the ideal the ideal marriage is where and Paul begins with the female so I simply will here too where the wife submits to the husband and the husband seeing that submission then orients himself toward loving and caring for the wife who does not hold her interest her own best interests first but rather his and he is humbled and awestruck by this such that he sees her best interests in mind rather than his. And there's this sort of symbiosis that takes place and this beautiful symmetry or, or dance of love and respect. Now, it's a rare marriage that, that probably has this or has this anywhere close to the, the perfection that Paul describes. 
And yet I think it is often the case that if you talk to couples who ha have long uh, marriages and would describe their marriages in generally happy terms, um, that you will find uh, these dynamics in one way, shape, or form expressed. Uh, they've, they've come to, in one way, shape, or form, uh, live out this, this reality. All right, so then, then this idea of pitting husband against wife in a power struggle is also as absurd as the head and the body pitted against one another in a power struggle. I mean, as it goes for one, it's going to go for the other. Okay, Chrysostom continues, Nothing can be better than a union like this. But I know some will say, how can there be love where there is fear? Okay, so here's the, simply the direct translation of what came earlier, Ephesians 5.33. How can there be love where there is fear? Most especially there, I say, she who fears also loves, and she who loves her husband respects him because he is her head. You know, and that's as, as husband and wife get into a fight and they start hurling insults at each other, really they're hurling insults at themselves. You know, as, as the husband comes down and is harsh or critical with his wife, he's simply being harsh and critical of, of himself and of his own leadership and his, of his own formation of of that which is his body, his own care of that which is his body. And likewise, if the, if the wife insults her, hurls insults at the husband, runs him down. She's running down her own head. <laughs> She's running down her own self. In fact, sort of the crown member of herself. Um, you know, it's like, it's like when a wife calls the husband, you know, you idiot. <laughs> well, I'm your head. <laughs> so if I'm your head and I'm an idiot, um, you've simply insulted yourself. And so we can see that, we can see that sort of in a counterbalance, maybe contrary way would be a, a negative way. That when it, where this where this is failing and husband and wife are attacking each other, they're really attacking themselves. She who fears also loves, and she who loves her husband respects him because he is her head. Also, she loves him because he is a part of his. Uh, she loves him because he is a part of her body since the head is a member of the body as well. Paul places the head in authority and the body in obedience for the sake of peace. Where there is equal authority, there is never peace. If there's... If there's I don't know. If there's one line that, that could possibly describe why the divorce rates are where they are in our country, it probably has something to do with our own selfishness and our own completely selfish, individualistic pursuit of <coughs> pleasure. But viewed from a different angle, this would also work. This statement here from Chrysostom, where there is equal authority, there is never peace. And for decades and decades and decades, we've been indoctrinated as a people that marriage is to have nothing but strict equality, um, two authorities of equal measure, and 
then we wonder why there is no peace. Now I think, I think this is a bitter pill to swallow for men, but I think this is mostly our fault. I really do. Now, it's low-hanging fruit to say, well, feminism and the rebellion of women and the asserting of equality and the asserting of the woman's authority in the home. But I don't, I mean, there's blame to be placed there, but I frankly place more blame on the man because the man in our society has said yes to all of this and permitted all of this and allowed his authority to be taken away and then has not acted with any authority within the home and so has utterly failed and in the, in the vacuum created by his inability to be the authority, to be the leader, to be the lover, the provider, the self-sacrificer, to govern and to take all the heat internally and externally in regard to his decision and actions. The inability of man to do that has left a vacuum that woman has had the need to fill. I think all too often it is, while, while husbands might grouse that women these days simply treat the husband as if he were a one of the children in the home. The sad truth is that many of us as husbands fall into that and are very happy to be treated exactly that way. Very happy to simply have someone feed us and clothe us and do our laundry and um, we don't want any greater responsibility or leadership within the home. We don't want to make difficult decisions. We don't want to say no to our wives when that is actually our God-given role. So there are, uh, there are certainly some deep thoughts to ponder here. Where there is equal authority, there is never peace. Chrysostom continues, A household cannot be a democracy ruled by everyone. I have to remind my, my children of this because, you know, it's funny. It's funny. They're born uh, with this democratic idea of, hey, well, let's all take a vote. Sorry, Dad, you're overruled. <laughs> Especially if Julietta's at work and I'm with the kids and it's two against one and they've tried this on me. It's been years since they've tried this on me. But hey, we both vote for an extra dessert. <laughs> yeah, well, this isn't a democracy, my friends. Yeah. So a household cannot be a democracy ruled by everyone, but the authority must necessarily rest in one person. And not only the authority, but the responsibility. I've got to dig this up. Chrysostom's got this great part of another homily, totally disconnected from these writings. And, and one of the key components is how, how, everyone, how everyone wants more and more authority and more and more, more and more honorable position, more and more status, more and more. Um, but, then, but then in achieving it, in achieving it, you realize what a burden and what a responsibility and what a detriment it is. And if you achieve like a high enough level of authority or status, you start to long and wish that you could just be, be simple. It's kind of one of these gra the grass is greener on the other side sermons, but he takes it from various angles and it's just fantastic because it, it shows the discontent of the human heart. But it also shows us why, why husbands want, maybe they want the power Maybe they want the authority to, to make decisions, but they don't want the responsibility then of what those decisions do. Shying away from the responsibility, they, they release and let go of the authority. And the house becomes a sort of, or at least the marriage becomes a sort of democracy of two, which never works. 
or, uh, or worse, spreads out throughout the family. That just, it can't be, it's a disaster. It's a disaster. So, a household cannot be a democracy ruled by everyone, but the authority must necessarily rest in one person. I would actually argue de, de facto it does. It does. Now, the, where we might need to repent as men and, and reorient ourselves in terms of our marriages that are struggling is to say authority is going to be in one person. If your marriage is really a disaster, it's probably because it doesn't, it isn't and hasn't been um, in you. It hasn't rested on you as husband. And so, so part of this, you know, again, it's, it's um, counterintuitive because it's going to cause all manner of strife right up front. And it's going to cause all manner of fighting and attacking right up front is for the husband to regain that authority and reassert that authority despite um, what flack and, uh, he takes and despite what conflict immediately arises because in the long run, with the long view, this is how God has ordered it and this is the right thing to do. So that's what repentance would look like for the man. Okay, Chrysostom says the same is true for the church. When men are led by the Spirit of Christ, then there is peace. There were 5,000 men in the Jerusalem church, and they were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things which he possessed was his own. Of course, reference to Acts chapter 4. But they were subject to one another. This surely is an illustration of wisdom and godly fear. See how when, when men allow Christ to be their head, men live in peace. Notice, however, that Paul explains love in detail, comparing it to Christ's love for the church and our love for our own flesh, saying that for this reason a man leaves his father and mother, but he does not elaborate concerning fear. Why so? He would much prefer love to prevail, because where there is love, everything else follows. But where love is absent, fear will be of no use. If a man loves his wife, he will bear with her even when she isn't very obedient. This is a, a key dynamic. This, through the remainder of the paragraph, is absolutely essential. And just Chrysostom at his best. If a man loves his wife, he will bear with her even when she isn't very obedient. You know, because we... How do, how do marital dynamics and relationships work? Well, I'll do X if you do Y. You're not doing Y, therefore I'm not going to perform X. And then, and then marriage counseling very frequently is just sitting down with the counselor as if the counselor were in the place of God, as if the counselor were some divine judge or arbiter who's going to hear and determine who's right. Or, hey, you know, you're actually demanding 51% and only giving 49%. And then it's just the sorting out of this, which, I mean, nothing could be worse. Nothing could be more of a dead end and just a black hole. Uh, meanwhile, you're paying dearly out of pocket for it. Um, because because the, biblical, the biblical teaching on marriage is far different. And I'll let Chrysostom do it because he does it so well. But here's, here's step one. As a, as a husband, you don't get to say, okay, well, my wife isn't very obedient, so I don't really need to... Uh, 
I don't really need to love, love her or bear with her. <laughs> As if your duty is owed to your wife. Chrysostom's going to say your duty isn't owed to your wife. Your duty is owed to God. And that changes everything. So again, I'll let him do it. How difficult it is to have harmony when husband and wife are not bound together by the power of love. Fear is no substitute for this. That is why he speaks at greater length about the stronger force, love rather than fear. So if you think that the wife is the loser because she is told to fear her husband, and you could even add submit to her husband there, it's the same, it's the same point. Remember that the principal duty of love is assigned to the husband, and you will see that it is her gain. And what if my wife refuses to obey me? A husband will ask. Never mind. Your obligation is to love her. Do your duty. I love this. I love this. I want to preach a series of like 20 homilies and they're all going to be called Do Your Duty because, because this, is such a, this was such a breakthrough for me in my own way of thinking and I just did not realize how much of romanticism and the Disneyification had infected me as a male to, to view the world and marriage as this, you know, this sort of like just wrong, emotionally driven, me-driven, um, romantically driven thing, when the Bible puts it so plainly, God has created an office called husband. These are the duties of that office. You're in that office. Do your job. But where's the emotions? Where's my feelings? Where's the, you complete me? <laughs> <laughs> Where's all the romantic, you know, mushy and uh, romantic prince and princess and prince charming and where's all of that stuff? Where's, where's all the stuff that I've been, s somehow my entire life just absorbed catechetically from culture that this is what it's to be. And you know what the Bible has to say about all of that? Basically zilch, because it's not essential. It's not essential at all. What's essential is here's the office of husband and here are the duties. Are you in that office? Do them. Here's the office of wife and here are the duties. Are you in that office? Do them. You don't get to say, well, my husband isn't worthy of it or my wife isn't worthy of it. That's not the question. The question is, is not if your job is performed in relation to your spouse. The, the question is your, your job is performed into the, in, in your relationship to God. Your, your boss isn't your spouse. Your boss is God. Your duty is rendered to him. It's precisely where, like analogous to where Jesus says to Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Feed my sheep. If you love me, love them. Perform, perform your duty to them. That's precisely the pastoral office. And it's precisely also the office of husband and wife. Imagine God saying to you as a husband, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Then Love your wife. Do your duty to her. No conditions. No if she does this first. No if she does that after. 
just simply, do you love me? Love your wife. And the Lord could say the same thing to wife. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Love your husband. Do your duty. That's how you show your love to me. So this idea, this idea, I mean, again, I'm going to overstate it just because I want to push the pendulum away from this romanticism that we've fallen into in this you complete me and soulmate and just, just garbage, just rubbish, just lies. Um, I'm going to push as hard as I can to get that, that pendulum back toward the middle, even going so far as to say it would be far more healthy for us at this point in this context to see marriage as a job. It's a job. Duty. Have you have you done your duties? You know. And then you can you, you can you can translate this by the way too. And what freedom there is in it to translate this to to the relationship between parents and children. You know, as a child, have you done your duty? As a as a parents, have you done your duty? And if you want, well, I don't know what what my duty is as a parent, or I don't know what my duty is as a child. Ah, well, there's this beautiful thing called the Small Catechism. It's about 500 years old, and there's this this thing called the Table of Romantic feelings. No, the table of duties. The table of duties. See how Luther understood this 500 years ago. We've forgotten. So you go to the table of duties and, and you read the scriptures that are there under the heading of, of you know, father and mother, under the heading of parents, or under the heading of children, what children owe their parents. Okay, and then the same thing is true when we go into the workplace. You know, so much of our workplace turmoil is like, well, I don't like how they make me feel. The people I work with make me feel bad. You know, and this kind of thing. It's like, you know, I'm not going to put as much in there because they haven't put anything into me. You know, it's like, so we're all living in this, in this toxic, romanticized work environment. What, what would God say? I mean, what he says to, to slaves and, and masters is the same as what he would say to employees and employers. He would say, here is your duty. What about my feelings? He doesn't mention feelings. Feelings don't really matter. This is your duty to your neighbor. And uh, if you're an, an employee, it takes the shape of this. If you're an employer, it takes the shape of that. If you're, if you're in a manager, you actually have both, right? There's people under you, and so you're an employer to them. There's people above you, you're an employee to them. And so here's, here's your duty. So I, I, love, I love because it sets us free. It sets us free, and it clarifies everything. And by the way, too, coming out of a radical Lutheran milieu where, where this is, there's such a false dichotomy presented of we don't serve God, we serve our neighbor. Utterly false dichotomy. Not anywhere in Scripture. In fact, the opposite is in Scripture, that we precisely in serving our neighbor are serving God. And in serving God are serving our neighbor. You cannot do one without the other. Um, but just such a beautiful freedom to be able to say to yourself, what is my motivation for doing a good job in this toxic work environment, in this toxic relationship with my adult children, in this toxic relationship with my wife? Do your duty. Have a good conscience. Confess your sins unto God where you failed. Confess your sins unto those whom you've hurt or failed to help. Receive his forgiveness. Be restored and do your duty. Beautiful, wonderful, freeing. All right. So, love these, love this, uh, these lines from, from Chrysostom. Love this uh, paragraph here on page 54. What if my wife refuses to obey me? A husband will ask, never mind. Your obligation is to love her. Do your duty. 
Even when we don't receive our due from others, we must always do our duty. Here is an example. Paul begins this passage by saying, Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. See, look at the connection. You can't, you can't, be, you can't serve your neighbor without serving Christ or serve Christ without serving your neighbor. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. If your spouse doesn't obey God's law, you are not excused. A wife should respect her husband even when he shows her no love. And a husband should love his wife even when she shows him no respect. Then they will both be found to lack nothing, since each has fulfilled the commandment given to him. Now, commandment and duty. Who would know that there would be such freedom in those two words? But there is absolute, wonderful, delightful freedom. And a way forward, no matter where you are, what circumstances you find yourself in, no matter how many wrong things you've done, no matter how many ways you've been wronged, the, quagmire, the way of getting out of this quagmire and mess is simply to come before God and say, what is my duty? God, help me to perform it. God, forgive me all the ways I've failed in the past. Forgive me all the ways I will fail in the future and guide and strengthen me so that I may fail less and so that I may live in a way that is pleasing to you and objectively good for those around me. All right, well, we can, we can simply move along, or I can pause here if you have any questions or any thoughts. If you like this, don't like this, um, feel free to, to let me know. Yeah. I have a comment. Uh, it's interesting to me, and, and, uh, after 40, 40 years of marriage, that, that a romance is there. Aha, uh-huh, uh-huh, right. And, and believe me, 20 years ago they didn't see it. Sure, right, right, <laughs> yeah. Now they do, and so it's like, you know, I don't know how to answer their question. Right. They see it. It's, it's such a great point, Bob. It's such a great point. And this is, this is something, too, I think we've, we've very much neglected. Because we've, defined, because we've defined love basically as romantic infatuation and that early stage of the relationship, um, where you're infatuated with each other and there's this, there's this newness and this exhilaration. And people assume that that's love. And then to, when one loses that, which all relationships eventually lose that, they think that love is lost and the marriage is doomed. And uh, very frequently this coincides with children coming in because children you know when you're married without children you can you can be pretty pretty focused on each other and then children come in and that focus gets dispersed and disseminated and there's disagreements and there's sleeplessness and there's all kinds of turmoil and this is frequently a time where people especially with very young children where people you know go through a divorce and then also also what is perceived is that the the specialness and the special feelings between the two have, have gone away and has been replaced by these challenges. Now what you don't, what you don't see, what we, don't, what we don't see is this is precisely 
the aging process where a new wine becomes a fine and old and uh, well-aged, wonderful wine. Um, but we, we just see the aging process and we think, oh, it's all lost. No, no. And so frequently what happens is this gets locked in place and then people just bide their time and as soon as the kids are old enough to get divorced or move out of the house, then a divorce comes. Like that's the other time divorce hits. But what couples need to realize, Christian couples need to realize, is that God has put you through this selflessness training and um, so enriched you uh, that now, now is the time where finally that, that aging process comes to its fullness and its fruition, where you can mature together and, um, in a sense, things be become rekindled and are recognized, to your point, externally by people who say, look at this thing you have, yeah. right? Uh, this, this is remarkable. I don't, I don't care how scarred you are or how long it took or how bitter the process was. Look at this thing. You're sitting here together after 40 or 50 or 60 years of marriage and, and you found a way to make it work. What a, what a beautiful testimony that is just to, to love and marriage in and of itself, but more deeply than reflecting the reality of Christ and his church. So this is what we want to, what we want to do, what we want to do. Maybe particularly, I, I'm speaking to people my age or younger. All we want to do is look at the big picture. We want to see that this is all okay. This is all according to God's plan. Don't worry about the romantic stuff. Don't worry about where this is going. Trust God. It's going in a good way. It's going in a good place. Okay. In the meantime, do your duty. Stop worrying. Do your job. Don't, don't let Hollywood or Disney or the last... Hallmark movie you saw change your view of, of what marriage is or is supposed to be. Do your duty, God will bless you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So do our duty versus the heart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so so this is, what we're talking about is vocation. And so we're talking about God's calling into a certain office. And what's foundational to that office are the duties. Okay? I'll give you an example. Because um, just for the sake of those online, you know, as, as you present this to others, they say, well, what about, what about my heart? Right? Um, there, you talk about duty, but, but what about my heart? Uh, the analogy is, the analogy is, if I'm going in for a triple bypass surgery, I don't really care where the surgeon's heart is. <laughs> I want him to do his duty, right? I, want him to, I don't want him to feel great about doing his duty. I don't want him to be, you know, like, like really feeling personal fulfillment to do his duty. I don't really care about that. Do your duty, right? And so, so again, this de-romanticizes it. And it's counterintuitive. It's going to be, for those of us who have been, you know, just so drenched in this romanticism, this seems like, well, that could never work. That could never be true love. No, romanticism and these false ideas are, are precisely and ironically what stop true love from manifesting. So it begins in this rather dry and perfunctory way, I suppose, or at least that is how it appears to our sinful nature, and that is to do your duty. And then in doing your duty, you find this actual rich expression of love where, where and this is what it means to be a royal priest, what does it mean to offer your body as a living sacrifice? To daily prepare a sacrifice for God. What does that mean? 
we sacrifice ourselves precisely by conforming ourselves to the duty at hand. That is the sacrifice. That is what, so then our lives take on this inherent meaning. It's like, you know, your husband's griping at you or grumping around or something. So you choose to be submissive and respectful and supportive. And it doesn't have any practical value or any practical or material reward, but guess what? You know that what you're doing is God-pleasing. There's nothing more fulfilling than that. There's literally nothing more fulfilling than that. And here, here you're exchanging romanticism for a true romance with God. And ultimately, that, that may well materialize into a happier and more romantic marriage in the long run anyway, than if you tried to squeeze more and more romance out of it by, you know, so. Oh, how God looks on the heart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, I would say, I would say my answer wouldn't change one bit. Um, God, because, because, again, emotion is overplayed. Love is born out, not in how you feel, but what you do. There's countless examples. I mean, what, what soldier feels like jumping on a grenade? Okay, but he does it because he loves. He loves his brothers. And this is, so love isn't, uh, I mean, the first part of love may be a feeling. The thing which, I, and I think I'm channeling C.S. Lewis here on this. I don't think these are my original thoughts. But that, that infatuation or that deep swelling movement within our breast, you know, oriented towards another, whether it's romantic or platonic or whatever it may be, that experience of love. I think it's C.S. Lewis who says that's like the ignition. That's like the spark. But that's not the fire itself. The fire itself is, is enacted. Love does. It doesn't feel. It does, right? And, and often, often what I'm trying to say is, is counterintuitively, in the doing, the feeling comes right as opposed to trying to drum up this feeling that is supposed to inspire the doing that never comes <laughs> that never comes yeah. um, I'm, well, selfish but the other way the duty is uh, the giving is the you know is the selflessness. Is the selflessness right so just to reiterate it for those online cuz it's a great comment you know the constant pursuit of emotions and feeling happy and feeling satisfied and all of this stuff is really a selfish kind of impulse. It's very clearly and easily seen as, as a selfish aspect of the, of the old Adam, whereas duty is other-oriented and is selfless. I mean, it's, it's why we recoil at the very language of duty, because we inherently know that it's selfless language. It's, it's hey, I have a job to do. I'm going to do something that I, by nature, don't want to do for the good of another. It's anti-selfishness. It's anti the old Adam, and it's precisely what God calls us to do. Now, the beauty of it, the beauty of it is you, I think you grow and develop and mature into this to where, um, to where you could even serve your enemies and truly, truly experience wonderful and blessed feelings in doing your duty toward them. Not because you're seeking and pursuing those feelings for self-gratification, but precisely because you're seeking the good of the other and there comes a point where there is no greater joy in that. There is no greater joy than seeking, than seeking the good of another, even if that other is your enemy. So the, the duty comes first and the heart follows, as opposed to the way Romanticism puts it is, 
if the heart's there, then the duty will follow. Well, I think we all have tons of anecdotal and personal experience of how that is simply not the case. Okay, well, thank you so much for your thoughts and reflections. I see that we're out of time. So let's simply pick back up here on the bottom of page 54, top of page 55 next week. The Lord be with you.